welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And on April 20th of this year, a jury returned a verdict of guilty against Derek Chauvin on three separate felony wrongful death charges. The trial of this case consumed 10 days of testimony, and the jury's verdict was returned after 10 hours of deliberation. On November 10th, a jury in Kenosha, Wisconsin, returned not guilty verdicts in murder and assault charges which were directed at Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old when he became a part of a private patrol group which sought to police a private business during community protests and civil unrest which followed the police shooting of Jacob Blake, an African-American man who was paralyzed as a result. In this case, the defendant claimed self-defense in the shooting of each of the victims. In Brunswick, Georgia, three white men, Gregory McMichaels, his son, Travis McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan were convicted of malice or intentional murder and felony murder in the shooting deaths of Ahmed Barberry on November 24th. In these cases, local police and prosecutors did not lodge criminal charges against the defendants until 74 days had passed following the the, uh, public release of a video of the killing, which had been recorded by one of the killers. Initially, the three men claimed self-defense and sought to justify their action as an effort to engage in a citizen's arrest of Aubrey when they observed him jogging through their neighborhood. And then earlier this month, on November 23rd, a Virginia jury returned guilty verdicts against 12 individuals and five organizations that had organized or participated in violent activities associated with the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. As a result of this verdict, the nine plaintiffs were awarded money damages which exceeds $25 million. This included a separate $12 million award in punitive damages, which was rewarded, awarded against James Field, who had earlier been convicted of murder when he drove his car into a group of protesters that resulted in the death of Heather Hales. What do these cases have in common? And what are their impacts in ongoing efforts to ensure that the American system of criminal prosecution is conducted in a fair and impartial manner. Tonight, we're going to discuss these trials, the evidence, the verdicts, the impacts and probable consequences on this nation's criminal process, 
Joining us for this discussion are Professor Tamika Moses, a criminal law specialist at North Carolina Central University School of Law and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina. And we also have Professor Donald Corbett, who is a constitutional law expert, who also teaches at the NCCU School of Law. So I want to thank uh, both of you for joining us this evening for, uh, for this discussion. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, I, I know each of you have followed these uh, proceedings uh, over the past year and now have had an opportunity to reflect on the impacts of these trials, these verdicts, proceedings. So my first question to you, which is kind of general in nature, is what are your impressions of these trials and the verdicts that resulted from them? So let's start with uh, Professor Moses. Uh, what comes to mind when I think about these trials is how much work there is to be done, right? Both in terms of the criminal justice system in and of itself, but even outside of that, in terms of race relations um, and other things that go on in our society, we have a lot of work to do. Um, I think in the Rittenhouse and McMichael cases in particular, the limitations of the criminal justice system was laid bare. Right, you, you were able to see how much a judge impacts a proceeding um, and how much jury selection also impacts a proceeding, as well as certain limitations related to the Batson law and other things that kind of um, dictate how a trial is run on a case-by-case -case basis. So in that respect, criminal justice system, there's some things we need to change, but also outside of that, as it, as it relates to race relations, we need to roll up our sleeves and really get to work on making sure that these incidents don't occur in the first place. Okay. Professor Corbett. Uh, yes, sir. And thank you again for inviting me to participate. I think for me, it was really a, a mixture of both relief and disappointment. Uh, relief that you had a conviction in the Arbery case or in the Arbery case, re relief in the the idea that you had a substantial damages award in the case out of Charlottesville, but especially in the case involving Ahmaud Arbery, was, there was still disappointment in all that had to happen to get to the trial and ultimately get to a conviction. You referenced in your open that it took nearly three months for anyone to even be arrested. Uh, and without the video, it may never have happened. I think on the other side of the fence with the Rittenhouse case, I think the disappointment stemmed not so much from the verdict itself, but and this, I think, hopefully echoes what Professor Moses said, it, it really gave us a clear view of what due process is supposed to look like, right? You have this very strong presumption of innocence. You've got this gentleman who killed three people, but he was, or two people, but is out on bail, you know, access to good defense counsel, and what clearly at times could be construed as an empathetic judge. And the reality of our system is that most defendants, especially defendants of color, find that combination to be really elusive to attain. So, uh, and just, you know, echoing the sentiments of Professor Moses, we have a lot of work to do on a lot of fronts. And, and I think all of this combination of, of verdicts and trials uh, laid bare all of those things. Well, cl clearly focused in the uh, George Floyd uh, case and in the Albury case, uh, was the issue of race. 
not raised in the trial directly, but clearly on the minds of, uh, of everyone in this country that race was a center part of, uh, of those, uh, those two cases. Uh, are there messages uh, that can be presented as to how uh, African-Americans ought to view what has occurred and this possible impact going forward with looking at how the uh, so-called justice process works on behalf or to protect uh, African-Americans in this uh, in this country. Uh, so, Professor Corbett, you want to start with that? I can try. I, I think, you know, my father used to say that, you know, it seems like every time we take one or two steps forward, we take another step or three backward. And, and that remind I was reminded of that a number of times, especially in the Arbery case. You know, we, we know the defendants claimed they were making a citizen's arrest, right? And, and the law that they cited was actually signed into effect, I think, in 1863. It was passed primarily for the purpose of detaining slaves who had escaped from the plantation, right? And I don't think that law was repealed until maybe April or May of this of this year, I think. So so in that regard, everything about that circumstance was rooted in race, whether it was a decision to the defendant, the defendants to assume he was committing the theft of the neighborhood, to assume he was coming from such a theft, the interactions with the police, who first, when they arrived on the scene, seemed to be more concerned about whether the shooter was okay, and all the way to the defense attorneys questioning the presence of Black pastors, and all the way to the closing argument by the defense attorney, who essentially even referenced Arbery's toenails and trying to you know, speak to people's historical stereotypes about Black people as wild animals. So it was just, it was everywhere. So you get that piece of it, but then you juxtapose it against the fact that, you know, you went to a fairly rural county in Georgia and a jury of 11 white people and one Black person convicted these men on most of the charges that they faced. So again, we're left with this, this really odd conundrum of, of being hopeful that things will change and yet being cynical that things will never change. And, and again, I think this was spelled out, especially in the Arbery decision. Okay, Professor Moses. Um, the only thing I would add to that is it's just two things briefly. Um, the first is that as a black community generally, um, we understand that the system may work um, differently depending on who's sitting in the defendant's chair, right? And so one thing that this these two trials show um, is that the system could work or can work depending on who's in the courtroom, who is the judge, who is the prosecutor. And of course, what are what's the defense attorneys, what are they going to do in terms of a defense, right? And so when all the parts work together cohesively, um, the system can work as it was intended. Um, but of course, when you weave in this issue of race, there's things that come into play that kind of make due process a little difficult for certain defendants. Um, and so in that respect, when we're talking about trials that occur on a day-to-day -day basis um, within, uh, for the Black community in particular, um, there are situations where people aren't afforded the kind of due process that was shown um, in these trials. And that's something that we need to improve. Um, I think the other thing, though, that we take from these trials is that we still have the power. Um, this was kind of alluded to earlier, um, but when you're talking about how these cases even got into court to begin with, it was really the community who was pushing for a prosecution or recording the video in the George Floyd case that kind of broke the case open. 
um, or pushing or pressuring the folks down in Georgia um, once that video was released to make sure that some charges were filed. And so what I would say is, remember that your voice matters, your advocacy matters. And if you see something that is unjust, um, is something that needs to be addressed by the criminal justice system, we as a community should be able to continue to speak up and make sure that people are held accountable. Um, Professor Moses, you mentioned as you were talking about the system and the system working um, as intended that, you know, it, it may or may not work. And there are many components of our criminal legal system. You also mentioned Batson. Can you mm -hmm. expand upon the importance of diverse juries and how that component of the criminal legal system has to be intact in order for us to, to ensure that justice is served? Right, so diverse juries are crucial um, to the criminal justice system, um, particularly when the defendant is a person of color, uh, because as, as everyone knows, when you walk into that courtroom as a juror, you bring in your own lived experiences um, with law enforcement and other individuals. Um, you know how to read the tea leaves, so to speak, when certain arguments are made uh, regarding whether or not this defendant was actually um, a danger to the community or engaged in some kind of criminal conduct. Um, Anything you hear in the courtroom as a juror is kind of filtered through your lived experience. Um, and so with that in mind, it's always important to have a diverse panel, um, a cross-session of the community that is actually representative of the county that the case is taking uh, place in. So the issue, of course, in the McMichael case, you know, with there being only one Black juror on the panel of 12 was, of course, there was, a, I believe, um, about a 20% population of Black folks in that county. Um, and so it's problematic for a jury of 12 to only have one um, person of color on it, one black person. The reason I loop in Batson is something that was kind of alluded to during the trial. Um, and this was even though Judge Wamsley found initially that there was a prima facie showing of discrimination in the jury selection or the use of peremptory strikes by the defense, um, he noted the limitations of Batson, specifically by quoting what Justice Marshall said in the opinion itself, right? Even though we are um, having this ruling today, it is not going to eradicate or eliminate uh, racism in jury selection. And that is true, because when you think about Batson, after that prima facie showing is made, the burden then shifts to the defense to show a race neutral, no, race -neutral reason uh, for not selecting this juror or for striking this juror. Um, and many people have argued, there's tons of literature out here about Batson that anyone can come up with an alternative race neutral reason for striking someone. Um, and as Judge Wamsley noted, I've heard the arguments of defense counsel, I've heard the arguments of prosecution, but based on the limitations, all they need to show is a race neutral reason. And because they provided those reasons, um, I'm going to deny the motion that was made by the state. Um, the one thing I wanna note, however, <laughs> in this particular case is that the defense spent a lot of time uh, researching the backgrounds of these black jurors. Um, for at least one juror, there was a question of whether or not he actually resigned from his position or whether he was fired. They went and pulled his employment records to confirm that he was actually fired. Um, therefore, their argument was, well, he lied um, about his employment status by saying that he resigned and he was really terminated. Similarly, they, you know, they went through Facebook pages and you know, just whatever they could get their hands on during the course of Wadir. Um, they kind of built their case as to why they were going to strike these people. Um, and so with that in mind, Batson is limited. Um, there's some question about whether or not those jurors were struck appropriately, but at the end of the day, it's up to the legislature and the courts, particularly, 
to find a way to kind of expand Batson's reach or revamp it altogether. Well, we're, we're at our break point right now because I know we have a lot of uh, questions, but uh, want to uh, take our break right now. I want to thank uh, Professor uh, Moses and uh, Professor Corbett for being our guests uh, this evening as we discuss some of these recent race-related uh, uh, cases that have uh, uh, dominated the news in the uh, past months. So uh, stay with us and we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and here is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Did you know that a driver is considered to be legally impaired when their blood alcohol concentration measures 0.08 or higher? Alcohol severely hampers a driver's ability to safely operate a motor vehicle, impairing judgment and slowing reaction time. Here are some statistics about drinking and driving. One alcohol-related death occurs every 52 minutes, according to the NHTSA. Drunk driving causes more than 10,000 deaths every year, about one-third of all traffic-related deaths. In a recent year, more than 230 children were killed by drunk driving crashes. Drinking and driving cost more than $44 billion in deaths and damages annually. 25% of adults admit that they drink more during the holiday season. The period from Thanksgiving to New Year's season estimated 25,000 injuries from alcohol-related crashes. New Year's Day is the deadliest day for alcohol-related crashes, with 58% of crashes being related to alcohol. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your reminder not to drink and drive this holiday season. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal View. Thank you so very much for staying with us. Uh, we are discussing some of the recent race-related cases that have dominated the news over the past month. Our guests are uh, Professor Tamika Moses, who is at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and Professor Don Corbett, who is also at the uh, at the law school, and they have. Uh, uh, watch very closely a, a number of these uh, cases over the past year. Uh, and in response to uh, the comments that uh, Professor Moses just made, and uh, we had uh, in, uh, in Georgia, uh, the Deep South, a jury of uh, 11 whites and one African-American. Uh, in the uh, Virginia case, which is also in the Deep South or the Deep Free South, uh, a jury uh, that was predominantly uh, white. Uh, we had in uh, Wisconsin uh, a uh, jury uh, that uh, we think was all white. And then uh, obviously in Minnesota with the uh, Derek Chauvin uh, case, we had a pretty uh, diverse jury for that uh, jurisdiction. Can we disabuse our mind now that uh, of the notion that uh, white jurors are not inclined to uh, convict 
African-Americans uh, just because of their race or to free whites who have been uh, are being prosecuted for crimes against uh, African-Americans, unlike the situation with, which existed uh, 40, 50 years ago uh, in the South where you didn't even get a trial. Uh, so are we at a point that we can say that with uh, a fair jury selection process that uh, fair-minded uh, whites uh, will do the right things when, when presented, presented with the uh, uh, evidence that uh, show that harm has been uh, afflicted upon an African-American by a white uh, perpetrator. Uh, Professor Corbett, why don't we start with you on, on that? Uh, I was hoping you start me with an easier one. I, but I, so it's, I think the answer is, is yes, but I think you got to put an asterisk by it because it, it requires threading a needle that's incredibly difficult to do. And, and for me, what I will try to point to in answer to your question is the strategy of the prosecution in the uh, Arbery case. So for, for folk who don't know, uh, obviously race infected all aspects of that case, uh, but the prosecution made the decision that they were not going to really make race relevant during the course of the argument or during the course of the trial itself. Uh, it wasn't until the end of the trial during her closing argument that the district attorney mentioned that uh, race was the primary reason that these gentlemen stopped Mr. Arbery when he was out jogging. What she did first was she painted them as vigilantes who were outside the law first and foremost, and that that lawlessness led them to kill this man. And, and for some people, not using race more definitively was, I don't know if offensive is the, correct, is the right word, but, but I think it was fair to say that there were a number of people that questioned that particular strategy of almost making this a race neutral case, at least through large parts of it. But the, the, the reality is if you have 11 whites on the jury in that part of Georgia, then the likelihood is at least some of them are gonna lean conservative. And, and often conservatives disagree with even the hint of allegations of racism. So I guess the fear was if she harped on race too much and hit it too hard, then she ran the risk of just having people run to their ideological corners and not hear what she was saying about the actual violations of the law. So in some people's eyes, she saw that, I think they saw that as a gamble, but you could also argue that the most important thing was that she get a conviction, that's what she got. But, it, but to get it, she had to almost ignore race in order for race to be taken account in the end, if that makes sense. Professor Mose. Yeah, I, I largely agree. I, I think the key to remember here is that the composition of the jury is only but one factor to consider in terms of whether or not a conviction is done in the courtroom, right? So the composition of the jury is important, but also the arguments of the prosecution. Uh, Linda Donikowski did an amazing job in Georgia with that trial um, based on the strategy that Professor Corbett just outlined and just her arguments in advocacy in general. Um, and that's really what brought things home for that particular case. Um, but that is not to say that anytime you see um, a trial where black jurors or, or jurors of color are stricken um, with some kind of hint of discrimination involved um, that we should just ignore it and say, well, you know, they were able to do this in Georgia, so it should, it should be okay here. No, we should still make sure that we're still making sure that people have um, an opportunity to serve on a jury if they'd like to, and that they're not removed because of their race. 
right? Because that's only but one factor um, that the that we need to consider when we're talking about convictions and trials generally. And now with both the Rittenhouse um, case and the McMichaels case, both of them involved private citizens wielding firearms and you know causing harm up to the point of death. Can you both kind of share your thoughts about the similarities and and particularly the differences that um, led to the different outcomes? Uh, Professor Moses, let's let's start with you. So the, the primary difference between the two cases was whether or not the defendant or defendants in the Georgia case um, could be painted as the initial aggressors um, before this individual was, was killed or injured in the Rittenhouse case. In Rittenhouse, the prosecution, quite frankly, did a poor job of showing that Rittenhouse was the initial aggressor, right? Their, their primary argument was he shows up to a protest with an AR-15, of course, that provokes the crowd and, and once, you know, draws attention um, in his direction. With opening statements um, in Rittenhouse, they started with painting the riots in the scene as something that was dangerous and scary. And, you know, they kind of fed into the defense right out the gate, uh, for lack of a better phrase, by, by doing so. Instead of humanizing the victims, talking about uh, the three individuals who were shot, they focused on the protest and the fact that Mr. Rittenhouse showed up to the protest with the AR-15. Contrast that with the case in Georgia, Ms. Donikowski opened on who was Ahmaud Arbery? What was he doing that day? He's a, you know, a brother, a, a son, et cetera, kind of humanizing him before he, she even got to what the defendants did on that particular day. The other thing that they did very well in Georgia in showing that the three men were the initial aggressors here was that by showing that one, Mr. Arbery never threatened them or intimidated them in any way, um, two, that he was chased for five minutes, right, trying to avoid a confrontation with these three individuals, and they persisted and insisted that he stop and speak with them. Um, every step along the way in Georgia, they, the team did a very good job of just showing that these were the individuals who started this. And because they started this, they cannot then say, I shot in self-defense, right? And from, from the very beginning, from opening statements, they did a very good job of, of showing that. And I think that's why they got the conviction in Georgia. And um, it's another reason why the Rittenhouse wasn't acquittal. Professor Corbett? Yeah, I, I, can't, uh, I can't add too much to that. I, I think that one of the things that struck me about both cases is that while, you know, factually there certainly were distinctions between the cases, they started with the notion that you had these white defendants who all engaged in violent acts in the name of, or in the alleged name of protecting property. So you, you have these essentially vigilantes feeling empowered enough to act as amateur law enforcement officers. It's not, it's not a great analogy, but it reminds me of all the Karen videos, like where the, if the police isn't around or aren't around, some folk feel empowered enough to ask people, what are you doing? You know, who are you going to see? You know, if you don't, if you look like you don't belong there. So, so for me, I, I think the distinction has already been laid out by Professor Moses, just in terms of in one case, you had a prosecution that was clearly devoted to showing that uh, these were these were people. Or, I'm sorry, Mr. Arbery was a person who got shot, uh, whereas the other one didn't focus quite so much there and didn't really bring it home until the closing argument. And really, by then it was too late. It just didn't run consistent with the rest of the case they had presented. So, uh, you know, it's again, it also opens up the door to this really strange 
mix of, and maybe you'll talk about this later, so I don't want to go too far afield, but we have this really volatile mix now in the country of these increasing numbers of open carry laws and, uh, and stand your ground laws. And with the Supreme Court looking like they're poised to expand Second Amendment rights of citizens, it just makes you worry going forward that we'll have maybe more cases like this where people who, in the name of defending self or defending property, use violent firearms or use firearms as a way to end up taking life. And, and again, I don't want to go too far afield from where we may be going later, but, but it gives you pause, certainly, in terms of what cases might look like this down the line. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in all of these cases, though, we saw the use of uh, video or misuse of video, depending on uh, which side of the aisle you uh, you set on. Uh, clearly in the uh, Derek Chauvin case, uh, there was an expert use of uh, video, which helped to uh, cement uh, the uh, prosecution's uh, case and to uh, into a very compelling uh, uh, set of evidence that uh, supported the jury's uh, verdict. Uh, in the uh, Rittenhouse case, uh, not so, uh, I guess, expert uh, use of the uh, video that existed there, and the defense seemingly used it more to their advantage than did the uh, the prosecutor. And then uh, it leads us to the uh, Auburn uh, case. Uh, would would the verdict in Georgia have been different? had there not been video, Professor Corbett? I think so. And I think I think maybe you don't even have a trial. You know, maybe you don't even have a trial. Professor Moses spoke to this a little bit earlier in that it was the, it was the community pressure, but the community pressure stemmed largely from the video. Once people saw the video, that's what generated the community pressure. That's what enabled, you know, the, or not, not enabled, but forced uh, some of the powers that be down in Georgia to look at a different set of prosecute a different prosecution team to bring the case. Uh, I think it was a game changer in that case, and just as it was in the George Floyd case, because when it changes and you have no video, now it's all about the word of the defendants against the word of a dead person who can't speak for themselves. And when those defendants look like you and they're from the same community and you go to the same churches, sometimes there's going to be more of a willingness to believe that side of the fence. So the videos did not allow uh, the defendants to run from what they had done. But I, I really am, believe in my heart of hearts that without the video, again, the McMichaels don't even go to trial. Professor Mosley. Yeah, I don't have much more to add to that. The only example I would provide is the letter that D.A. Barnhill wrote after he um, decided that he couldn't prosecute this case, after he recused himself. Remember, he wrote this detailed letter stating why the McMichaels and Mr. Bryant were not guilty. Um, And part of his assessment, of course, was Ahmaud Arbery's background, right? And then also what he saw on the video. So anytime you are missing a video and you're left with the word of the defendant who's left standing, of course, you're going to naturally go back and see, well, what, what does, this, does this defendant, excuse me, does the victim have a, a violent criminal history? Um, what's in their background? What's their prior law enforcement um, context? And all of that will be used to kind of vindicate the actions of the defendant. And therefore, there would probably be no prosecution. Well, you know, also, you know, I, and I want to raise this with you, in, in all of the other three cases, 
uh, and by three cases, I mean uh, in uh, uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case, and even in the uh, Charlottesville uh, case. The video was provided by uh, a public reporter. Uh, it was uh, basically uh, cameras uh, uh, in, installed uh, on poles in the community uh, by the uh, by the state. Um, in the Arbery case, the uh, video is provided by uh, by the defendant uh, in, uh, in 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 this case, and then supposedly uh, that individual attempted to use his exposing of that video. Uh, to uh, as a part of his defense, but how arrogant is it that you would videotape your participation in criminal uh, conduct and then either negligently or intentionally uh, releasing that uh, to the uh, to the public? Uh, what, what's your reaction uh, to uh, to that set of circumstances, Professor Bozeman? Let's start with you. I mean, it's extremely arrogant, right? And it's actually pretty funny that it ultimately led to his downfall at the end of the day. But this goes back to point number two, uh, race relations in this country is a problem. And the fact that he, Mr. Bryan, uh, was able to follow the McMichaels in his vehicle uh, and record these three men chasing Amar Arbery with their big old trucks and two firearms, um, it's astounding. Um, and the fact that they went even further to um, share it because they believe that it kind of vindicated um, their actions in this particular case is equally astounding. But I think it goes back to race at the end of the day and the fact that they believe that they did nothing wrong. They were protecting this vacant lot. Um, in their eyes, Mr. Arbery did not belong in their neighborhood. Um, and therefore, you know, no harm, no foul, nothing really to see here, except, you know, maybe this is entertaining to you. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that had he not shared the video, there wouldn't be a prosecution. So I'm grateful in that respect. Um, but I'm extremely disappointed that we still in 2021 um, have situations where people think that this is the appropriate course of action. Professor Corbett. Yeah, when, I, when I first saw the video, uh, I thought that perhaps what they were trying to do was to mitigate his involvement in it. Right. To show that I was in a different truck. And, you know, I, I just rationally or maybe irrationally thought, OK, well, he's trying to use the video in such a way to show that he was not involved with the actual death of the individual. And then it just seemed like the more information I got, I was like, no, nah, he was trying to show he didn't do anything wrong. And I was like, I, just speechless, just completely speechless. I, I think it speaks to not just the arrogance that Professor Joint referenced, but also the privilege that exists you know, our society today, but, you know, well, well, we have the ability to do this because, and then you fill in the blank with whatever you want to fill it in with, but this shows you he was in the wrong place. He was in our spot and we had every right to stop him and question him and make this citizen's arrest. Even if we weren't informing him, that's what we were doing. And here's video proof of all that I did right in this situation. So it was really, it, I got nothing. It didn't make any sense. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with professors Don Corbett and Tamika Moses, both law professors at NCCU School of Law. And we're talking this hour about recent cases involving 
Issues of race, issues of privilege, issues of uh, private policing, um, issues of um, police overreach. And when we come back, we'll continue with this conversation. Good evening. My name is Olivia Andrews, and I am a current senior here at North Carolina Central University, and this is your Community Information Spotlight. We will be highlighting domestic violence. October was Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and it is important to acknowledge and draw attention to unspeakable acts of victims and survivors to continue being a voice and raise awareness to stop the violence. This violence epidemic affects individuals around the world every day and does not discriminate regardless of age, gender, or race. According to the NCCADV, on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million people. If you or a loved one are experiencing any form of violence, reach out to the Durham Crisis Response Center here in North Carolina at 919-403-6562 or at their email at crisisline at durhamcrisisresponse.org. For anonymous confidential help available 24-7, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-787-7233. 3224. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Professor Tamika Moses, a criminal law specialist and former AUSA for the Eastern District of North Carolina and law professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and Professor Donald Corbett, a constitutional law expert who teaches constitutional law and other courses at NCCU School of Law. And this hour, we have been talking about recent cases involving defendants um, in situations that are in some ways related to race. So, um, Professor Corbett, I wanted to go back to a point that you were raising about open carry, kind of stand your ground laws that we see in in various states, um, citizens arrests, which you know existed in Georgia at the time of the Aubrey murder. What are your thoughts about where this country stands at this point when it comes to private policing, which is, of course, facilitated by these jurisdictions that allow um, open carry and stand your ground and citizens arrest? Are we going to see more situations where individuals self-police? Is there a difference between the way that white individuals are able to to police versus black individuals who may want to wield weapons to protect themselves in their communities. Okay, that that was a lot. So I'm gonna, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's okay. I'm, let me all right. Let me start with the big picture premise, and then hopefully I'll I'll drill down to to some of the 
the more nuanced points you were asking about. I think you've got this, there's, there's real tension, at least in my mind, between the idea of what self-defense is supposed to be and, like I said, the advent of the increasing numbers of states that are allowing these stand-your-ground laws. So for people who are unfamiliar, self-defense basically is a concept that, that says that, well, the law gives me the right to defend myself if I have a reasonable belief that I'm in danger. And if I don't act, then I'll suffer harm that could include being killed. So, so the idea is that I had to act in this way in order to defend myself. And that's, that's where uh, our Rittenhouse kind of sat with regard to his legal defense. And, and the, the challenge is that every state looks at this a little bit differently. It used to be once upon a time that before you used deadly force against an individual, then you had to retreat uh, to the wall, basically. Like it had to be your absolute last resort before you could do that. And now a lot of states aren't doing that anymore. So in Wisconsin, for instance, if you believe that your life is under threat, you don't have to run away. You have essentially the flexibility to shoot and, and deal with the consequences later, provided you can show that it was reasonable for you to believe that you were in harm's way. So, you know, it's really hard to know what the national picture is because it in many ways depends on what that particular state uh, allows for with regard to the flexibility of self-defense. But, but as I said earlier, when you take that basic premise and then you add in this concept of, of the open carry laws that are becoming more popular, and then I think it's also true that we're seeing an increasingly widespread acceptance for people in society that I have a right to have a weapon and then I have a right to use that weapon as I see fit. And when you add that kind of attitude and disposition into these self-defense laws, into these open carry laws, into these stand your ground laws, then you're going to end up, like I said, with a very, very volatile mix of situations where you may have more individuals who engage in this kind of behavior. And if you have jurors who are increasingly receptive to the idea of the use of force by ordinary folk in the name of protecting themselves, then you may have more Kyle Rittenhouses in the future. Professor Moses, what are your thoughts? I agree with, with what Professor Corbett just outlined. Um, the only thing I would add is that when you think about this in the context of protests, um, generally, um, you won't have Kyle Rittenhouse without the police um, kind of agreeing or allowing these individuals to be on this property, wielding these AR-15s in the name of defense property, right? So when you add the racial component into this, let's say we're talking about um, some kind of um, Black, Life, Black Lives Matter protests or some protests related to police brutality, um, if the individuals protecting property with the AR-15s are Black, um, is the assumption going to be made on the part of police that those people are with the protesters are actually protecting the property? And who's going to take the time to make that distinction, right? And so that's the challenge when you kind of integrate race into um, this particular picture. Um, what I'm worried about is that when we talk about protests specifically, because they're going to continue to occur, because people are going to continue to be killed unjustly, um, more people are going to feel empowered to show up with their guns in the name of defense of insert whatever. Um, and so in that respect, what are we going to do? What pressure can we put on police agencies or police departments to make sure that those people are actually patrolled and limited to whatever area or property that they claim that they are defending and not able to kind of join the protests or antagonize the protesters in any kind of way? Um, that's something that we really need to look into in terms of being able to regulate 
or minimize or kind of like find a way that, uh, to avoid having these two people or two groups intersect um, in the middle of a protest. Well, let me just kind of broach a subject that we don't often uh, discuss. Uh, and in this, uh, in this particular discussion, uh, what about the demeanors of the uh, judges in, this, uh, in these cases and how uh, their participation, and, 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 that, and that's a, a powerful uh, participation, but how the participation of the judges uh, comport to you with uh, appropriate uh, judicial demeanor and uh, comportment in uh, these type uh, cases. Uh, uh, Professor Moses, you most recently have been in the courtroom. Uh, so uh, why don't we start with you on that, uh, on that question? Yeah, so judicial temperament is hugely important um, in any kind of proceeding, but particularly a trial, because the jury is looking to the, the judge to kind of manage or dictate what's going on in the courtroom. Um, and really how the judge performs or um, presents him or herself is kind of how the, the, the tone of the trial goes. Uh, when you look at the Rittenhouse case, um, you see that Judge Schroeder um, interjected himself a lot into that trial from screaming at the prosecution in front of the jury um, to how he excluded certain points, pieces of evidence um, to how he kind of interrupted um, questioning on the part of the prosecution when he thought it wasn't relevant, right? All of that plays in the juror's mind into one, it can leave an impression that the prosecution is doing something improper, but two, it can also show that the judge may be leaning one way or the other. Um, and it kind of cuts against this concept of fairness and due process if you believe the judge kind of falls on one side as opposed to being somebody that's kind of in the middle and impartial. Um, compare Schroeder, of course, with Judge Wamsley in Georgia who had a very mild um, and even killed kind of temperament throughout the trial. He never raised his voice. He never raised his voice. Um, he addressed things that needed to be addressed outside the presence of the jury. Um, I believe he made some pretty good evidentiary rulings, um, both in, in the presence of the jury and outside of the presence of the jury. Um, and just his whole demeanor throughout the trial kind of shit um, created this space where everyone knew, knew that the process would be respected, um, that outbursts wouldn't be tolerated in the case of the verdict. Um, and that he expected the, the, the um, witnesses as well as the attorneys to kind of present themselves in a particular way. And I thought that that was very helpful um, for that particular case. Um, so I will say, yes, the temperament of the judge matters. Um, I will also note, however, that Judge Schroeder uh, is not alone in terms of being unable to um, present himself as someone who's even tempered uh, because there's several judges, unfortunately, um, out there that kind of conduct themselves in the same way. Professor Corbett. Yes, sir. I, I feel similarly. I, you know, one of the things I often hear judges say when they are speaking in public space outside the courtroom, they'll say, well, you know, my job is just that to be of an umpire. You know, I just call the balls and strikes and 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 let the trial play out as it's going to play out. And the question that I always want to ask them that I never get opportunity to ask them is, well, we all know if you play baseball that that umpires have strike zones. And some umpires will give you the high fastball as a strike or the outside corner as a strike or the inside corner as a strike. And the key thing is knowing as a lawyer where you need to throw the ball so you can get the strike. And I think that if you have a judge, as was the case in the Rittenhouse case, that clearly maybe it's a little harsh to say, <coughs> excuse me, that he was 
that he enjoyed the FaceTime of the camera and, and sought it out with uh, whether it was outbursts or, or interesting rulings or deciding that maybe the people shouldn't be called victims because, you know, whatever, whatever the rationale was, I'm assuming because he thought it was prejudicial. But the, the impact of that is no matter where the strike zone is, jurors, I think, are going to look to the judge for certain cues. And if they feel like the judge is leaning in one direction, then I think it's implicit in that potential lean that juries would give that side that the judge is leaning toward more credit and more credibility, which can tamper with the uh, the verdict itself in the big picture. So, so yeah, I, I think that better or, or lower key is better for me, uh, as I think it is for most attorneys, but you don't always get that. And when you don't get it, the question is, as an attorney, how do you handle it? How do you deal with it? And some attorneys do really, really well with it and others struggle. And Professor Corbett, I'd like to get your thoughts on um, something that Professor Moses has talked about in terms of the um, issues that still exist in the larger criminal legal system. Um, wanted you to share your thoughts in light of these trials and in light of what both of you were just saying about the judge's role. We've talked about the jurors. We've talked about the witnesses. Can you share your thoughts on um, what we should continue to focus on in improving our criminal legal system in light of these cases? Yeah, I, I think for me, the, the, the first challenge, is, and it may be the most daunting one, is convincing people that you actually have a problem. Because if, if people don't accept the fact that there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's mountains of difference between the kind of trial that Kyle Rittenhouse got versus the kind of trial that many, many other defendants get, which is the, the latter, which is much more regular than the, or much more the rule than the exception, then I think we're gonna be spinning our wheels about this. I think people have to first acknowledge that there is a problem with the way our due process uh, that lies within the criminal system, certainly, and in some aspects of the civil system uh, are, are super problematic for the people who are participating in those trials. So when you have someone's life at stake, then you want the system to work consistently no matter who the person is. And, and we just don't have that. So I think the problem is, again, getting people to understand this is a problem and we need to take positive steps toward doing that, but or toward addressing some of those problems. But as you can see, you know, shortly after the Floyd verdict, we had a lot of talk on Capitol Hill about the whole concept of police reform and and, and maybe qualified immunity going away and, and this, this wide ranging federal law that would address it and what's happened. I mean, you don't, you don't hear anything about it now. So I, it's either they don't have the will or they don't have the votes or some combination of the two. So as long as you have that out there as your overriding sentiment, I think it's really, really difficult to make the inroads that you need to make. And when that happens, you're dependent upon the individuals who are involved in every case and, and that could go either way, just depending on the disposition of those people. Mm -hmm. And Professor Moses, kind of picking up on that thread, can you talk about the role that, that money can oftentimes play in criminal prosecution? So, you know, the type of um, defense team that one may have is, is often tied to the type of lawyer you can afford. Um, Let's start there. I've got another question, but I, I will often do compound questions, so I'm trying to get better with that. 
Sure. So yeah, money does play a role, right? I think we were talking um, earlier about Rittenhouse. Um, he, ra- he was able to raise a lot of money for his defense. Um, that money not only goes to paying some top-notch defense lawyers, but it also goes into investigators, right? Money that can be spent looking for additional video or canvassing the area for additional witnesses, um, things like that. When you have money, you have more time or more resources to kind of build your defense. And that's why that matters. Um, that's not to say that there aren't good attorneys who are also appointed. I don't, I don't want to make it seem that way because there are very good public defenders and also defense attorneys who are on the general panel who do a wonderful job um, with the resources that they have. But when you have money, you have more resources to really build your defense and investigate the case beyond what the prosecution was able to do. And related to that, so when we think about influence and privilege, and so both of you have made the point, the the very valid point that without a video in the Floyd case or the Arbery case, that prosecution probably would not have occurred at all in either of those. and, and what would have kind of led to the lack of accountability was the influence and privilege that the perpetrators had. So even in the Arbery case, you've got, you know, um, one of the McMichaels, the father, right, former law enforcement. Um, and, and so can you talk about how influence and privilege is still playing a vital role in equity that we see or the inequity that we see in the criminal legal system? Yeah, I think it goes back to um, my earlier point that, you know, with this system, it's run by people uh, and people are imperfect. And because we're imperfect, we're sometimes going to rely either consciously or unconsciously on um, maybe some relationships we have with people that are involved in the case or um, the officers who may have investigated the case. Um, And that's why it really matters for us as individuals to pay attention to who is your DA Um, judges, when they're on the ballot, pay attention to them, um, as well as kind of their history. Um, Because if people are subject to being swayed by relationships or other factors that are not related to um, the case or the investigation at hand, they should be removed from their positions. And so we should really um, pay attention to these people, um, find ways to show up uh, for elections if these people are in elected uh, positions, um, but also find a way to advocate for uh, different people to assume these roles um, or to um, have other people kind of come into the case that kind of speak to uh, whatever biases or relationships may have played a role. And I think that's kind of playing out in Georgia right now um, with the initial prosecutor being, excuse me, prosecutor being indicted um, for her abuse of her position. Um, I believe um, maybe something will come of Mr. Barnhill as well, but right now they're kind of focused on that initial. Uh, prosecutor, and rightfully so. Well, in, in response to a comment made by Professor uh, Corbett, uh, I think it's very clear that if we're going to find uh, meaningful reform within this uh, criminal uh, justice uh, process, uh, it is going to require a concentrated campaign on the part of people to push for it, rather than uh, relying upon uh, responses to individual acts of misconduct that occurs along the way, uh, which is uh, seemingly what has been propelling much of the conversation uh, uh, about uh, uh, reform of this criminal justice uh, system. And uh, so until we have a concentrated effort, and uh, and, and I guess as uh, Professor Moses uh, suggests, 
the right people in office uh, to make uh, these uh, corrections, uh, then our uh, efforts at uh, criminal justice reform is probably going to falter along the way. But I know we are winding down and out of time. So uh, I'll turn it over to my, uh, my co-hosts. Yes, and we are unfortunately out of time, but we'd like to thank our guests, Professor Tamika Moses, a criminal law specialist and former assistant United States attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina, and a law professor here at NCCU School of Law, and Professor Donald Corbett, who is a recent guest on the show, or frequent guest on the show, I should say, and one of our uh, noted constitutional law experts. He teaches constitutional law, torts and other courses here at NCCU School of Law. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.